Welcome everyone to Morning Energy Live. Uh, this is going to be a web series offering timely insights to keep you on top of the rapidly evolving energy industry. Each month we'll be releasing new episodes featuring 30-minute segments interviewing some of the most thoughtful and influential figures in the industry today. We'll be discussing market moving topics like the push and pull of the energy transition, how politics is impacting both the traditional and new energy economies, and all the struggles that come with it. I'm your host, Andrew Gillick, Managing Director and Energy Sector Strategist here at Inveris Intelligence Research. Uh, so for our for our first episode, I am uh, fortunate to have a uh, good friend Arjun Murthy here. Arjun is a partner at Veridin, publisher of Superspiked, Conoco board member, avid golfer, and lover of hard rock, actually metal. Um, so welcome, Arjun. So glad you could join me. Andrew, it is such a pleasure to be here, and I'm honored to be your inaugural guest on Morning Energy Live. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, this is great. Well, so we got lots to talk about, uh, especially with some of the recent headlines uh, that we just saw the last couple of days. But let's start off, um, let's just talk about the cycle. Uh, I think there are a lot of bulls out there that think recent events have made it such that the industry is no longer cyclical. I'd argue the more things change, the more things stay the same. Um, so where are we today in the cycle, and is there any credence to uh, this time it's different? I mean, I think we all know this time is different is a dangerous phase. And I think it is about first studying history and then seeing what applies going forward. So over 100 years, these cycles are 10 to 15 years up, 10 to 15 years down. We're coming off a 15 year period of down. And I do think we're in kind of year two, two and a half of what well could be a decade to the upside. Uh, the idea that you've lost cyclicality, though, not in some ultimate sense. I mean, this is a capital intensive commodity business and excess returns get computed away over 100 years, 10 percentage return on capital. But you go through stretches where you're above that 10 or 15 years. You go through stretches where you're below that 10 or 15 years. I think what will be more unique about this cycle is that we expect more year to year volatility driven by uncertainty with global economies, given by sort of this effort to try and restrict capital spending by traditional companies. And so we expect a lot of volatility on the way. I think it's going to be a good decade overall, but there's no way we have, we're going to go away from cyclicality in any sense of it. So that, that part I would push back on. So one of the uh, cycle, I don't want to say cycle busters, whatever the opposite of that is, has been shale, right? They've, they've maybe shortened the cycle in some ways uh, because of the short cycle nature of, uh, of shale. And, and over the last couple of years, we've seen uh, shale sort of steady itself in terms of uh, spending within cash flow and, and slowing the growth rates. Do, do we think that's going to be sticky in the next decade? Or how do you, how do you see that uh, going forward? I mean, I think there's a couple of different ways to, to sort of break apart the shale question. So in an environment where uh, we had zero interest rates and companies were rewarded for growth and shale was the place where after a, a, a pretty extended up into the right kind of cycle, we started the early 2000s at 20, we ended at $100 oil and we stayed there for about three or four years during that period of excessive optimism. Here you suddenly have this resource that did appear to be lower cost than say deep water or some oil sands or Arctic or whatever it is. And it stimulated massive growth at a time of zero interest rates, very low cost financing, and people sort of overgrew. It became overcapitalized. And by not focusing on full cycle returns, we all know how it ended tragically. Uh, over the last decade, shale oil yeah. EMPs earned a zero, zero, and a really low number 
percent yeah. return on capital. That is a terrible, terrible result, right? And throw from yeah. that period, and then the COVID downturn, and what had then become now 15 years of sort of down profitability. Investors said, "No mas, no way, don't do it." And then that mixed with COVID, it mixed with the sort of rise of ESG and the climate. You know, everyone has to have Paris aligned targets, so don't spend. Don't spend for climate reasons. Don't spend because you wasted a bunch of money. And so a lot of the quote discipline you're seeing is an outgrowth of that. But you also have to marry that up with what is an inevitable growing maturity of the shale resource space. And how you would disaggregate these things, I think is a big question on a company by company basis. And so when you ask, are shale EMPs more disciplined? I think that question is gonna best apply to companies that have true let's just call it decadal-like running room in their resource. And that's not that that's many kind, of the companies. That's kind of, a, that's kind of a short list. It's a the short list, right? And I expect room, yeah. that group of companies to, in general, not go back to the high growth type of mantra. They're going to focus on returns on capital, dividends on free cash flow. If you don't have that, I don't think discipline is the right question. I, I think it's a question of, will they be able to add newer or different low-cost resources? Can they time acquisitions or growth correctly? or not, and that obviously is gonna vary company by company. So I think there will be more dispersion amongst you know, who is better returned and who is less returned. I don't think any company will go back to the high growth mantra until they're asked to. So that's the other thing. Energy right. has recovered, but it's still generally out of favor. It's 10% of the S&P earnings, it's only four and a half percent of the S&P weight. Andrew, I will say that the growth guys at some point will come back to the sector. It may not be this year, it may yeah. not be next year. It may be in the future. And once those Garfield growth guys come back and the S&P weight is much higher, and we've had like five years of really good returns on capital, that's where I'd say it's definitely not going to be different this time. But we are so far from that. I don't think there's risk of, quote, discipline being lost at a time where investors still generally dislike the sector. There isn't access to capital. There are not IPOs. And the cost of financing has gone up. Yeah, pretty substantially too. And so um, when I think about the limited amount of companies that have that multi-decadal or even a decade worth of, of opportunity, do you think that the North American operators, those that have any ounce of you know offshore international DNA are going to start looking abroad again? Or maybe they already are. We're seeing offshore day rates going higher. We're seeing you know other deals announced, um, like smaller portfolio companies selling to larger operators. Is, is that the trend you see next? I mean, I think it's what needs to happen. And I think the question is who can do it. And so we're coming off this decade where shale, US shale, it's miraculous. It was 70, 70% of global supply growth over the previous decade. That's a ridiculously high percentage, right? And so yeah. the whole world benefited from it maybe actually investors in the shale sector benefited least, citizens benefited not oil and gas companies in this case. Um, it, it is to some degree been trapping for the companies involved in it. A lot shifted their business models away from global, away from exploration to shale only. And I think getting back that skill set is going to be hard. There are some companies, some are north of the border, uh, meaning in Canada, some are in other parts of the world that either were forced to or didn't evolve to US shale and have retained some of these skill sets. So I think whether it is Canada, which I think ought to come back as a theme, not just the oil sands, but the other place like the Montney, the Duvernay, and some other sure. traditional heavy oil places, none are as large as say shale per se, the oil sands are, but not uh, some of these yeah. smaller oil plays. But some of those companies have been forgotten. Some of them have some running room. Um, and I think they can come back into focus. And then I'd say, 
who has an international skill set, who has an exploration skill set, very few companies do. And I do think that will be part of the supply equation going forward. But it, it's hard to give you a list of companies like, oh, here are the great explorers we can yeah. turn to. And it's pretty yeah. remarkable. You yeah. might have to call some folks out of retirement for that one. I'm not sure. Well, I saw your. Uh, I just well, realized you know, I retired, so I felt like we didn't have enough, you know, analysts <laughs> who, who you know who've been covering the sector for a long time. So I do think it, it is a role model to unretire, and so I would I would advocate that for some of my exploration oriented friends. Come back. We'll we'll we'll, we'll send them a memo. Uh, I saw. I just noticed the book behind you, the Led Zeppelin book. So it sounds like to me, uh, the song remains the same in the uh, oil and gas sector here in terms of cyclicality. Yeah. Okay. So um, there, there's been some debate recently about peak demand. Uh, a couple of years ago, many, including the EIA, thought that, um, you know, it was here, peak demand. Uh, they also might have mentioned that yesterday, which wasn't so helpful. Um, but, but, but I think in, in general, it seems like the consensus thought is that peak demand has been pushed out. So as you think about um, what you call the other 7 billion and in what you write on, in Super Spiked, how do you see global demand growing uh, or changing uh, in the decade to come? You know, Andrew, the, the first thing I'd mention is I had the good fortune to go to Midland, Texas last July. This is a, a 15 months ago. And we went to the Petroleum, Midland, Petroleum Museum in Midland, which I would recommend everyone go to. It's an awesome history of the business. But one of my favorite exhibits was one that showed like the Economist or equivalent covers going back to the 1920s, which regularly called for the end of the oil age. Uh, the most recent one was from The Economist in October of 2003, which simply de declared the end of the age of oil. And again, this has been repeated many times through history. You know, the point of the other 7 billion people, so the very quick math, there's 1 billion of us that use 41 million barrels a day, Europe, US, Japan, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and there's the other 7 billion people on earth that use 52, something like that, 59 million barrels a day, excuse me. We use 13 barrels per capita, they use three. Places like India and Africa are barely using over one barrel of oil per capita. So when people say oil demand either peaked in 2019, as some have said, including people who wrote about this yesterday, now they're saying, well, it's 2028 or 2030, is Africa gonna peak? at 1.2 barrels per capita, when we're at 20, and Canada's at 20, and Europe's at 10, and South Korea's at 20, and India's gonna peak at 1.4 barrels. How is that, what, how is this even possible? Africa's gonna go from 1.4 billion people to 2.4 billion people. That alone is gonna drive, you know, 4 million barrels a day of oil demand growth, let alone if they go to two or three or four or five, you don't have to get them to 20. And, and so like, I'll try and be quick about this since we only have 30 minutes. If you have 40 million barrels a day in the rich world, and one quarter of that is gasoline, I will accept that over a 40 year period or some 20 year, 30 or 40 year period, you might, I don't think you will, but you could make the case for replacing that with EVs. That's minus 10 million barrels a day of demand, 40 to 30. And maybe there's some other efficiencies that knock off another five or eight. Okay, let's just call it, let's call it 20. Let's say you cut it in half, 40 to 20. The 60 million barrels a day, 59 in the rest of the world, if you go to three, if you go to five, if you go to 10, the ultimate potential there with population growth is 160, 160 million barrels a day of demand growth potential. Now, Andrew, I didn't publish that figure because it's a ludicrous number. It is not a forecast, nor is there a time frame attached to it. it could be over a hundred years. That's the type of energy that you need 
to give everyone a real living standard. And you darn well better have electrification. You better have hydrogen. You better have renewables and all these other things. Because I don't think, or I'm not sure, that you're going to get to a 260 barrel a day. Well, it's a ludicrous number. It's not a forecast. It speaks to how challenging this energy situation is and how irrational, how off target, how preposterous these peak oil demand arguments are. The final point, Andrew, is yeah. none of this to say it's only up and to the right. If China is transitioning their economy right now, if we are debating harder soft landing in the US, if Europe is sinking into its own ocean due to its own you know, insane policies, then it is possible oil demand can always flatline for a period as we've seen with coal. But it is inevitable and it is deserved and it is economic, environmental and social justice for those other 7 billion people to improve their living standards and they are going to. And I think we should feel be happy about that. It is a good thing for other people in the rest of the world to become richer. I can't, can't argue with that. No, I can't, I can't argue. I can't argue with that. I mean, I, I, I think, I think that that that's a fair point. You know, my follow-up question was going to be: Can the lucky one billion reduce their consumption enough to offset the seven billion? And it sounds like, yeah, not, not really, or not at the it's rate not with a which. Close call. What math are people doing? How are you yeah. meeting the energy needs of these other seven billion people? You, they cannot use pretend energy. You, you, you can say hydrogen is going to scale. But what is hydrogen if it's not green? Here's where I agree with the climate activists. There is no point to hydrogen, turning energy and using energy to create different forms of energy if it isn't actually done from renewables or nuclear. And there's obviously like, a huge like cost. I like hydrogen. Pink right? hydrogen's my favorite from nuclear. <laughs> it's going to be good. We can talk about that later. Um, you know, is well, anyone so in India going to be driving a Tesla or a BYD? Come on, right? Well, <laughs> come on, who, how can you stop Africa at 1.4 barrels per capita? I don't understand that. What math are people doing? Are they saying they're always going to have bad governments, that, they, that they, they will always be held down? They could be held down for a while. I accept that. You could flatline yeah. for a long period of time. But it is an inevitability, an inevitability they will want to become wealthier. And they deserve it. So, so one of the things that you talk about in in some of your writing is um, is about addressing energy poverty, right? And that's sort of what you've started discussing now. And so, why is now the time to address energy poverty rather than at some point in the past? What's what's different? It's always been the goal, and my simple point is be, is that it should remain the core goal. And whether I think that or not, it will be the core goal of these countries. You know, and so what's happened, and it's really since, so I'd say, 2018, 2019, and then clearly turbocharged during the COVID era, is we suddenly went to net zero by 2050 is the only goal that matters. And they can say, hey, the UN still has its sustainable development goal targets, and people put out these reports. But the mantra of net zero by 2050, which we're all supposed to take pledges on and vow with certainty we're going to do it. That has become the dominating narrative in all discussions, and that is not okay. Um, that's, and by the way, it's not just climate activists. It is CEOs of companies, it is CEOs of oil companies, CEOs of technology companies, of banks, who've all taken this pledge, and, and that's fine. You can want to be environmentally better and all these kind of things, but the starting point is always lifting people out of poverty, the progress that the world has seen. There is no chance, zero chance, the people of India, Africa, Southeast Asia, and the rest of the world, and including, by the way, poor Americans, poor Canadians, poor Europeans, deserve it. Uh, and they will, they will absolutely fight for a better standard of living. And that always has been the goal, and it absolutely should remain the goal. Now, while you're doing that, I do think the environmental goals are compatible with economic development. 
There's no chance okay. India is going to want to import 15 million barrels a day of crude oil uh, like it, like like China currently does. Right. So right. they will absolutely try the new stuff. Not I'm not saying one thing that is against new energy, but you have to be realistic about the timescales. It has to scale at cost with as little of the subsidies that you can have. We don't have that right now. We have to live in reality. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're all trying to get there. Reality's hard. Uh, we don't we don't always want to accept it. Um, but like, I, I guess one of the one of the challenges I have with the seven billion, not not lifting them out of poverty, but but they can't all have like two cars in their driveway and the dishwasher washer, you know, like how, how do we do, do we did the seven billion, you know, want are, is it capable for them to have what the one billion have now without breaking the planet? And um, not I, just I, I know you don't mean it the way you gas. phrased it, so I'm just going to I'm just going to answer it, which is simply it's not up to us. Uh, it's yeah. certainly not, you know, and I know you didn't mean it this way, but they absolutely have the right to live to whatever standards of economic potential they want to live to. Now, they may choose a different way of living. Sure. Uh, you know, maybe there isn't a car culture in some places. There, there, there could be lots of reasons, different reasons. why. Maybe they choose to not drive SUVs. Maybe they say, you know what? If we're going to be importing 50 car. million barrels a day of oil and we got crowded cities, let's ban SUVs as a society. Like, there might yeah. be different choices these countries make, but they are absolutely entitled to progress, and they're going to get it. It, it may yeah, take a long yeah. time if they have bad governments, you know? Yeah, no, not not saying they aren't entitled to it. Just like the, yeah. the like again, the reality, the physical reality of whether it's oil, gas, coal, or metals, whatever kind of things you need for battery or windmills, whatever you need. It just it just seems like a lot um, to lift everyone to the level we are today. Does it mean the population needs to change? Does it mean the one billion need to accept less? I don't know. It's it's just it's it's that math that I'm trying. I don't think the math with. works making the one billion poorer. And I don't think any society is going to stand to become poorer anyway. And you, you're already going to get protests from, and you're going to get people to, God forbid, think for themselves about some of this stuff and recognize some of the problems with the current policies. I, I think this idea that, A, you can't adapt, that you adapt better. I mean, there, there's this dichotomy that the, the, the places with the cleanest air are the places that is richest. Look at a map of clean air and look at a map of wealth, and it is perfectly correlated, right? There are some challenges with biodiversity. Uh, that's an area where I think we could improve upon. But again, I'd argue you're not going to be able to meet the energy needs of the other 7 billion people without the new stuff. You know, and so I think there is an opportunity to have a nuclear Marshall Plan as an example. Where is that? We know it's zero carbon. Uh, we know uh, countries like UAE have had some success building out nuclear. France is obviously a European example of a country that's uh, basically off fossil fuels power. So these things are possible. You, you don't have to use fossil fuels. You may not want to, but you have to use something that actually works, that's baseload. And, you ha and again, uh, you can take policies on the demand side. Th this idea that we have to do without or we're going to be poor, it's not about my opinion. No one settles for that. No, Europe, right? Germany, they started lignite coal rather than freeze to death last winter. And what was a warm winter, by the way? Got totally bailed yeah. out, right? Yeah. I, no, I hear you. And like the technology, all these things are absolutely part of the solution. I was going to save the nuclear discussion till uh, later, but you know, it, it seems like that's a that's a technology that has been uh, sort of pushed to the side because of fears, because of tragedies that have happened in the past. But to me, the footprint 
uh, is much smaller than a wind or solar plant. The, uh, the timeline that uh, the plants will last is much longer. The technology over the last 20 some odd years has just improved dramatically. And we're, we're just, we, we've been doing some work on it too. The team's been looking at um, some of the behind the meter uh, SMRs that could potentially uh, work for large tech companies, right? Like these tech companies suck a lot of energy out of the grid and they, they need something back, backing it up. And that could be a good, good answer. Um, pretty sure all you listeners out there, there's a button you could push on the bottom if you want to learn more about how we think about nuclear. Um, all right. I digress. So well, one of the things um, that we've talked about is is that the, the colonial era ended 80 years ago. Um, but I might argue, has it? Uh, you know, the U.S. military is still running around the world trying to protect U.S. interests. China has their hooks into everything in Africa and South America, even the Middle East. And, and so maybe it's not the colonialism of the 18th and 19th century, but um, is it really any different? Isn't it just still the powerful countries trying to tell the less powerful countries what to do and keep them consuming one barrel a day? And what's going to change I think that? what's interesting is you certainly have powerful countries, U.S., um, I think Europe is clearly diminished in fading power and, um, you know, not sure that's such a bad thing if you look at history. And it clearly China is an example of a rising power and powerful countries are going to try and exert their influence. I think where I take comfort and hope and optimism about the direction of the world is places like India and even China, which currently is not super friends with the United States. I'm an American, as you know, as an example, it doesn't matter what we say or think. They now have an ability to affect their own outcomes. Um, and self-determination is absolutely part of, the, part of the plan here. And I think for India, they're probably not quite in the same place that China is, but they're working towards self-determination. I think the place that is still, yeah. and I think that's true for a lot of the Southeast Asia countries. I think the parts yeah. that are still challenged yeah. are the countries of Africa, where you do see the effects of climate protesters in Europe, uh, protesting banks in Europe to not finance a singular pipeline from Uganda to Tanzania in a continent that uses 1.2 barrels per capita that actually exports more oil than it demands internally, despite having a population that dwarfs most other places. It's completely outrageous, right? And so Africa has not been able to wean itself from the sort of interference and influence of especially Europe and to some degree America as well. And that would be my hope for Africa. And I do feel optimistic that India, Southeast Asian countries and China Again, may not be friends with China right now, but China uh, are going to be able to chart those. It doesn't matter what I think. doesn't matter what you think. doesn't matter what President Biden thinks. doesn't matter what whoever runs the EU thinks. Uh, and it certainly doesn't matter what that crazy Guterres who runs the UN thinks. They're going to have self-determination. And I think, I think we should feel good about that. And that is a change from the colonial era. Okay, so, so times have changed. Times have evolved a little bit in terms of what these some of these countries in particular will do and maybe the timeline for africa being able to do that is pushed out a little further than southeast asia and india and yeah. um but still all that demand is coming for something um all right well so it could come um, over 100 years too right these things right. you know it doesn't mean that demand comes quickly it doesn't mean that african countries which face geopolitical challenges suddenly resolve them next month right so there is actually yeah. there will unfortunately be time to grow into this. See, unfortunate because it means some of these people are going to stay poor for longer than I think they should. We can't help their circumstances to some degree. If you're Venezuela right. and you've been taken over by Chavez and whoever now runs it, it's very yeah. sad what's happened to the once great country of Venezuela. I hope they make a comeback. Argentina is an example of that. 
so on and so forth. So again, the timing of when geopolitics gets better, when countries move towards capitalism, when they move towards self-determination, that can vary greatly and can definitely impact the trajectory of all forms of energy demand, including oil and gas. Okay, so if we, if we take the premise that the world is going to continue to grow in demand for hydrocarbons, uh, you know, for the foreseeable future, um, it probably means that the the goals of one and a half or two degrees set forth by IPCC or any any of any of the climate goals are sort of off the table. And I, I'm actually not sure. Outside of the activist community, there are those that believe we can achieve one and a half degrees by 20 whatever. So, um, so as as we as we think about that, and we think about COP28 coming up in November, I think uh, beginning of November, one of the uh, one of the topics that I know will be brought up is this like loss and damage fund, right? And and it's the idea that the the one billion should pay into a fund to support those on the lower end of the 7 billion whose climates and environments have been damaged by climate change. Um, so that was like the outcome of COP27. COP, all these meetings are joke, by the way. They've achieved nothing. Like I'm, yeah, well, we'll talk about that. We'll consider this fund. We'll think about how maybe we should help. Um, and, and in fact, Kerry sat in front of the Congress recently and was like, no, the U.S. government will not contribute to these funds that we talked about saying we would do last year. Anyway, so who's going to do it? Is anyone going to do it? Are these loss and damage funds ever going to show up? Should should oil and gas companies be setting reserves aside like they are for a, a carbon tax? Uh, it, or, or is this just a lot of talking heads? So two different issues here. First on okay. the degrees, I think we do have to remember there's a lot of good news too. So while it may be possible that for folks who feel especially passionate that you got to get to one and a half degrees, that they may be not totally realistic. It's also very true that all those worst case scenarios, eight and a half, six and a half, four and a half degree scenarios are also equally highly improbable to happen. And in fact, it increasingly seems like below three degrees and maybe even 2.7 is your high range. There are people, I'm not a climate scientist who will take every 10th degree very seriously. But there, you're, you're taking away those upside scenarios as well, and you have to keep that in mind. We are spending trillions of dollars trying to crack the code on what could work next. And while we're avoiding low-hanging fruit like nuclear, ban SUVs, is a bunch of things you can do that could help the situation today. We're being ideological and partisan about this, not pragmatic. You will have still, despite all that, taken away a lot of the worst-case scenarios. I think in terms of loss and damage funds, it, it is certainly beyond my area of expertise. What I will say is, the dollar amounts needed to provide energy for the rest of the world is so massive, I'd be very skeptical you can do it with just a loss and damage fund. So whether there should be such a fund or not, again, I, I probably shouldn't just give an opinion on it without having truly studied the issue. I, I might be skeptical, but I think I need yeah. to do more work on it. What I will say is what the countries need help with is moving towards capitalism moving towards governments that allow their economies to develop. There are a lot of smart people in the world. There are a lot of capable people in the world, but they actually need a good investment and fundamental backdrop. And I think one of the challenges that you see in the UN, and one of the things you see with these cops, is this anti-growth Malthusian approach to the world that I'd argue has utterly failed and will not work going forward. So how do you bring capitalism? How do you bring freedom to these people? Again, that might be beyond my scope as an energy equity specialist, uh, but I would argue that how did China get better? 
it moved away from pure communism towards capitalism on its coast first and then broader country. Now it's moving back in the other direction. They're moving more towards yeah. authoritarianism. So we will see if their sort of economic miracle of the previous 20 years continues. India under, you know, when it was initially spun out from India, uh, a lot of socialism going on. That has started to fade as well. So you develop with capitalism. Yeah. It makes the world better. We need more of that. Latin America, a classic example. When they move towards capitalism, it gets better. When they move away from it, it gets worse. Venezuela is a case in point. Brazil is a sort of lower volatility example of Venezuela. And so I would argue that is what they need. They need more capitalism. They need more freedom. Whether they should have a loss and damage fund, I don't know. I suspect that it's meaningless, but I need to do more work on it. All right. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left here, and I wanted to get to a question I was saving here till the end, and it doesn't have to do with climate or anything like that. Uh, news broke yesterday that the uh, the BP CEO would be uh, stepping down, probably not by his choice. Um, what do you think this signals? Do you think it signals that um, BP's strategy of trying to lower oil production by 40 percent while investing in unprofitable renewable projects in a rising interest rate environment with no free cash flow to fund them was a bad idea? Or is, is there something else that, uh, that you think is going on here? Well, I will refrain from commenting on the BPCO specifically since I don't have any specific information of what exactly transpired there. But what I have written about is sort of, um, I've been very appreciative of the approach generally the US oil companies have taken which is let's focus on fixing the core business, which struggled last decade. Let's fix our oil and gas business. Let's improve profitability. And depending on the size of the company, it might make sense to study, perhaps through a venture capital fund, perhaps through some small science experiments, some of the new stuff, but let's do it with caution because we know we don't want to invest in high capex, low variable cost businesses that we don't know anything about in areas of uncertain ability to scale at cost without subsidies on some sort of realistic timeframe, which is more the direction more of those European super majors have, have taken. And so some of them have, have talked about dialing it back. I, I, I will say I find the new Shell CEO to be a real breath of fresh air. I don't know him personally, but uh, Wael Sawan, I think is a great example of, hey, sometimes you need different people in these jobs. And again, I'm, I'm personally a fan from afar of seeing what he's doing. I've always been a huge fan of uh, Patrick Pouyanné, so I will offer that up. Uh, I've, been, I've been fortunate to have kind of seen him on a couple of different occasions. I never covered Total, but at least their strategy to me has always seemed more logical, where it was sort of integrated gas to power. You might debate some of the stungs on the margin, but I think Total and, and Mr. Pouyanné have a really good track record as well. So I, I'm grateful that you know I'm an American and have been able to cover American energy companies. I think it's really tough being a, a European energy company these days because you're facing this more um, you know, religious aspect to, to, to what should be done. And I, I, I think it's gonna be tough for these companies as long as they're headquartered over there. Now that, they may that not be able to right. move, by the way. I'm not suggesting that will happen. I'm just saying <laughs> the pressures in Europe, despite all they've gone through, do not really seem to be receding. But again, I'm not European, so others may have different views on that. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think what we're seeing even this week with what the North American operators doing case in point, Chevron investing in the hydrogen project uh, this week um, makes a lot of sense from a, a business model standpoint. So we'll, we'll see where we go from here. Well, look, Arjun, this has been fantastic. I'm sorry we don't have another hour to keep talking about all these great topics, but uh, thank you so much for being, uh, being here today on Morning Energy Live, and um, we look forward to chatting again soon. Andrew, you're an awesome host. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you.